This summer we'll be looking at Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. And today we'll look at chapter 1 and then for the following seven weeks look at the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Some years back, there were these pictures that were computer-generated, and they had repeating patterns, and they were quite popular, and they were printed in books and on posters and so on, and they were called the magic eye. And these pictures required a certain way of seeing They required you to relax your gaze and try to look beyond the surface. And if you could look beyond the surface of what was going on, then either gradually or all of the sudden, uh, uh, the three-dimensional image would jump out at you. Do you remember those? Well, some people could never see it. And they would hold the book or the poster up to their face and they'd look and they'd look and they'd look and they'd say... I don't see anything. I just see this repeated pattern. I don't think there's anything there. 
And then others who persevered a little more or were able to relax their gaze a little more and look beyond the surface, you would hear them all of a sudden say, Wow! Whoa! Where'd that come from? Look at that! And they would then gaze for a while because they could look all over the place at this this hidden world that was behind the surface. That's something of how the book of Revelation functions. It, it peels back the curtain for a little while. And it, it gives us a glimpse of what's going on behind what we see happening in the events of the world and the events of our lives. And throughout Revelation, we have this, this alternation between a scene in heaven and a scene on earth. And if we look at the scene on earth, it looks terrible. Things are falling apart. Everything is coming apart at the seams. And then it switches to a scene in heaven which shows us what is really happening. And it shows us what's happening behind the scenes. And so we look at this book of Revelation to look at what's going beyond the events of our world, behind. And that's what this is called, the Revelation. The word apocalypse comes from this, uh, this Greek word, and it means an unveiling, it means an uncovering, and that's what's going on here in this book. It's, it's an unveiling, it's showing us reality behind what we can see. Now, as you are probably aware, uh, this book is not the easiest to interpret at certain levels, it's full of symbolism, and the first question comes up in the first verses. The first uh, interpretive question, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what does of mean? And there are two possibilities that the scholars debate. It could mean that it's a revelation about Jesus Christ, or it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now both of those are true, but it looks like the emphasis, at least in the opening words, is on that it is a revelation from Jesus Christ that he is communicating. Because we look at the first verse and we find that the emphasis is on origin and transmission. It says the revelation, if we read it, from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That gets a little complicated. It says God gave it to Jesus Jesus gave it to his servants, but he did it through mediators. He did it through his angel who gave it to John to write it down to give it to us. So it looks like the emphasis is here is on the origin, which is God and Christ, and the transmission which comes through Christ or from Christ through the angel to John to his servants. Now, this revelation is also called, in these first opening verses, it's called the testimony of Jesus, it says, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's called a prophecy. Uh, If we keep reading, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And uh, it is also called a writing. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So this revelation from Christ through the angel through John, written down, is also a prophecy. It is a the testimony of Jesus Christ, and it is uh, written so that we can have it today. 
Now, in this, in this first section, we can deduce some principles that are important for, not just for the reading of the little bit that we're going to study this summer, but some principles for reading Revelation. And I, I find that there are two, uh, two kinds of Christians when it has to do with Revelation. Some are kind of repelled by its difficulty, apparent difficulty, and kind of stay away from it. And others are fascinated by it and want to spend all of their time in it, uh, picking up the little details and trying to figure out what those are. And uh, this first section gives us some kind of common sense ways to look at this book so it's not so frightening and so we don't get too lost in some of the details that we miss the whole message. The first principle is this. We should read it like a picture book, not like a puzzle book. Many people read it like a puzzle book. And they say, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And let's see if we can make this fit into a grand scheme. But it is designed to give us pictures. And um, if you look at this, uh, some of the verbs that are used here, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Then it says, he made them known. That's, that word is, he signified them, uh, which is also a seeing kind of word. And then if you look down at verse um, 11, uh, it says, um, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then in verse 12, it says, I turned to see the voice. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? See the voice. Uh, and then uh, if you look at verse 17, when I saw him, and so John is giving us what he saw, and he's painting pictures for us. And so we should read Revelation as a picture book. And um, uh, I have a, a professor, brilliant professor, he was one of my professors in seminary, and he wrote a commentary on Revelation, and he's something of an expert on Revelation, but he loves to tell stories about those who understand Revelation best. He says uh, when he was teaching at seminary, some of his seminary students uh, were playing basketball in a gym, and they noticed that the janitor, who didn't have as much education as they did, and certainly not as much Bible preparation as they did, he was sitting there reading. And so they went over and they said, what are you reading? And he said, the Bible. And they said, what part? And he said, Revelation. And they started thinking, well, we're going to help this poor guy out. And so they said, do you understand it? And he said, yes. And then they were intrigued. They said, what's it mean? And he said, Jesus is going to win. He got it. He got the point. He didn't need specialized education to do that. Another time this professor of mine was preaching at a church or teaching at a church on Revelation. He said, I want children I want children to read Revelation because it's a picture book. And so a 12-year-old took him up on it. He went home and read Revelation. And then the professor asked him, do you understand it? He said, yes. It's we adults who have trouble understanding it because we're reading it not like a picture book, letting the impact of the images hit us, but we're examining these details and sometimes arguing over the symbolism rather than letting the, the pictures run across us and give us their message. That's one principle and probably the most helpful principle I could give you about reading Revelation. 
But we also have um, motivation to read Revelation because it's the only book in the Bible that has an explicit blessing on those who read it and keep it. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. Why reads aloud and why hear? Because there weren't many copies. And so everybody depended on a public lector, a public reader to read it. And he's saying, blessed is the one who stands up and reads it, and blessed are those who hear it. How much easier do we have? We don't have to gather in a central place as the only way we can hear it. We, we can read it ourselves, and we can hear it as well as we turn on our, our devices, and we can have it read to us. So we have much easier access, but this blessing is still pronounced on those who read it, but not only read it, what's it say? And keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, um, like all Scripture, like all Scripture, Revelation had immediate message for those who first heard it. It was given not in a vacuum, it was given in a context, an historical context. And so it had meaning for those who received it. And they understood it. They got it. It was for them. But it's it's Holy Scripture, so it has meaning for Christians throughout the generations. That's how all Scripture is. And Revelation is not different. And so that should help us in interpreting it. If we come up with interpretations that would have been completely meaningless to the original authors, and I'm sorry, the original readers, then those are probably not right. Um, if, if, for example, there was, a, I think, a 70s movie that had the, the locusts that come out of the abyss, well, these were attack helicopters. Okay, what's wrong with that interpretation? What's wrong with that interpretation is... It's saying that that message was not for the people of the first century because what did they know about attack helicopters? If that interpretation were right, it would be saying it wasn't for them, it's only for us. And it's not for people a thousand years from now who don't know what helicopters are because they're so antiquated and the transportation is different. So be careful. Be careful about interpretations that they could never have come up with in the first century. And uh, another, another thing about Revelation is it talks about what is near, what is coming, what is about to happen. Uh, in verse 3, it says the time is near. In verse 19, it says, um, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. But we need to be careful. This was given in the first century. We are in the 21st century. So some of the things that were future for the original readers may be past for us. So not everything in Revelation is future. Some of the things may have already taken place. And you might be surprised because in our time, we tend to read Revelation as if it were all about the future. But historically, that's not how Christians have read it. Historically, Christians have read it, finding much of it to be about the past. So what was future for them may be past for us. So those are some, some interpretive principles. Now, and those show up right, at, right on the surface or right at the beginning here. Now, um, as we get to the greeting, verses 4 to 8, we, we find that the author was named John. 
And he mentions himself three times. In verse 1, John. Verse 4, John. Verse 9, John. Now, John was obviously well known to the recipients of this, this revelation. Who was this John? Well, the best candidate we have for this John is the Apostle John. He was so well known, he didn't have to identify himself. But uh, when we do our historical investigation and see what the ancient church believed, the best possibility is that it was, in fact, the Apostle John. And there is much in common with the writing of Revelation, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Gospel of John. Many, many words, many themes that they have in common. And he, uh, even though he was the Apostle, if that's correct, he identified himself with the people. This is for, if you look back at verse 1, the revelation is for the servants of God. And then John identifies himself in verse 1 as his servant, John. And then in verse 9, I, John, he doesn't talk about his authority, he simply says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he identifies himself with the Christians in their very difficult circumstances. And he sent this revelation, or rather, Jesus sent the revelation through John to seven churches that were in Asia Minor. Uh, John, verse 7, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Then you look at verse 11, the seven churches are named. During the rest of the summer, we're going to be looking at those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. But there's something curious going on here, and this, this signals something as well about Revelation, the use of numbers, symbolic numbers. There were other churches in that region of Western Asia Minor. There were other churches that we know about from Scripture. Colossae, for example, but it's not mentioned. Why not? Well, it's not trying to be exhaustive. It's using a number symbolically. And we'll see sevens appear, and tens appear, and multiples thereof, and twelves appear, and, and twelve squared appears, and, and uh, twelve squared times ten cubed. And so uh, they use these numbers in different ways. And here it looks like this number is the number of completeness. Seven is a number of completeness. So it's to these seven churches, that is to say, to all the churches, which is why we're reading it to this day profitably. And why are we reading these this summer? As I said, we're a new church, we're a young church, and we're trying to be the church that God wants us to be. And we'll find lessons to these seven churches that also apply very specifically to Florida Coast Church 20 centuries later. Now let's get into John's greeting here. He uses some traditional elements and he combines them with some novel elements. In verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And that's, we see that in a lot of the letters. That's, that's traditional for Christians, although it was a new thing that Christians began to use. Normally the Jews would greet each other with peace, shalom. The, the Romans would greet each other with uh, greetings. And so what the Christians did is they combined the best, the highest blessing of the Old Testament, shalom, peace, well-being, and they combined it with the highest blessing of the New Testament, which is grace, God's favor toward us. And so this became the standard Christian greeting, grace and peace, the best of both Testaments. But after that, he begins to get creative. It says, grace to you and peace 
from Him who is and who was and who is to come. So he identifies God as the source of grace and peace, and he calls Him the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Do you remember back in Exodus where Moses is in the desert and he sees a strange sight? And that sight is a bush that is burning but it's not consumed. He goes up to the bush and a voice out of that bush speaks to him. First says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And then he has this conversation with God. And Moses asks him, who are you? What is your name? What shall I say? How shall I identify you when I go to the Israelites and to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he says, tell them, I am sent you. The one who is. But here, here the title is expanded, isn't it? It's not just the one who is. It's the one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come. And then, it says, also, from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now, here we have some interpretive challenge. Who are these seven spirits before the throne? There are a number of interpretations. But because this is wedged between the one who is and was and is to come, and then, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, I think it would be improper to interpret these spirits as angels. But then we have the difficulty, if this is... God, why seven spirits? Isn't there just one Holy Spirit? Well, it looks like what the author is doing, it's it's being creative here, and he's emphasizing that this one Spirit is the sevenfold Spirit. He is with the seven churches wherever they might be. So I think that's the best way to read this. And so it is from God, who was and is and was and is to come, from the sevenfold Spirit, who is before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now these titles for Jesus are not accidental, of course, but they are very much in keeping with what the people needed to hear. It says that he is a faithful witness, and the people were being persecuted, and they were being challenged to deny their faith. And so Jesus is identified here as the faithful witness. And some of these Christians were being struck down and killed for their faith. And so Jesus identifies himself as the one who's already been there himself. The one who is the firstborn from among the dead. And these Christians were being struck down by the kings of the earth. And so Jesus is identified as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so this identification of Jesus is what the people needed to hear. They needed to be faithful witnesses, even unto death, at the hands of the kings of the earth, because Jesus had all of that. He had death under His control, and He had the kings of the earth under His control as well. And then, we move into praise at the end of verse 5. It goes from greeting to praise, which is also quite typical. And from Jesus, the faithful witness to the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth, to Him, and now it turns to praise, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. 
And then this praise, if you notice, the praise covers past, covers present, and covers future. That is, aligning the work of Jesus with the God who is, and who was, and who is to come. It says that He loves us, and He freed us from our sins by His blood in the past. He has made us what we are now, a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. And He is coming with the clouds in the future, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And here He mentions or alludes to a couple of Old Testament prophecies. The conclusion then is in verse 8 of this section, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty, the beginning, the end, the one who's always there, the one who is in control of all things, something that Christians in those days and Christians now need to hear, don't we? In tumultuous times. Tumultuous times in our personal lives, tumultuous times in our nation, in our world. What do we need to hear? There is a God who is and was and is to come. He's the Almighty. He's the beginning. And He's the end. Now we get to the vision. Verses 9 to 20, we have the vision of Jesus Christ. And this is familiar, uh, similar to the vision that we see in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's similar to the vision we see in Daniel chapter 7. And also in Daniel chapter 10, we read part of that in our Old Testament reading, of one who was like the Son of Man. And John saw this when he was in exile. It says he was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was right there with the people. He was being persecuted as well, and so he could write from within. He understood their experience. He was walking through it with them. Interestingly, a little side note here, it's the, the first and really only mention of the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day, which is, as far as we can tell is, is the day the Lord rose, the day the Lord sent the Spirit, which was the first day of the week. And so here we have in the New Testament a recognition of the first day of the week as the, the day of the Lord, no longer the last day of the week, but we're in a new age, the age of the Spirit, and it's on the Lord's Day. And when he was in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, in exile, on Patmos, he heard a voice, and he turned around. And he saw this vision of this man. Well, first of all, he noticed seven gold lampstands, and then in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We just heard that back in Daniel. One like a son of man. We hear that all through Ezekiel, the son of man. And it describes him much like the vision back in, in Daniel. It says that he had a long robe, golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, we would do well to take a few hours, and go through each of these pieces. The, the white hair, the, the, the eyes flashing fire, the, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the, the long robe, the, the breastplate. And, and we could go through all of these and, and tease out some of the imagery here. And in fact, we will be doing some of that. Why? Because in the letters to the seven churches, the messages flow out of this vision. 
And we'll see that these messages to the seven churches hearken back to this vision of Jesus. So this is the fount of these letters. And we'll be looking at these details, but we're not going to do that right now. In keeping with the idea of looking at this like a picture book, the idea is to try to recreate in our minds this image and see what that image does to us. And what that image does to us, and here's a good check. Here's a good check to see if that image is having the impact that it should on us. And that is, are we reacting like John reacted? In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is a bizarre image. This is a frightening image. This is an awesome image in the older meaning of awesome before it got applied to everything. Awe-inspiring image. And the proper response to turning around and seeing one like this is to fall down in terror. And that's what John did. And that's what Daniel did. And that's what everybody did who had this sort of encounter in the Scriptures. And if we get a glimpse of that that awesomeness, that frightening awesomeness, this is this is fire, this is these are sword, this is this is awe inspiring, then we like John need to hear what Jesus said to him. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Fear not. We used to love to read the Chronicles of Narnia in our family. And I don't know how many times we've read it. Here's our copy. It's well worn. And those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia know that there is a character. The chief character, his name is Aslan. And there are, at the beginning, four brothers and sisters. And they break through somehow into another world that's behind our world. And there they see things going on that they didn't understand in their own world. And those things help them to come back to their own world and understand their own world better. But here at the beginning, the children find themselves with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're talking about one named Aslan. And the kids don't know who this Aslan is, and they have this conversation. And Mr. Beaver says, you'll understand when you see him. And then Susan says, but shall we see him? And then, why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. And then Lucy pipes up, is he a man? Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he he isn't safe, 
said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the experience that John had. Retold in a children's story. Have we had that experience? Of realizing that he's not safe. He identifies himself here as God. He says, I am the first and the last. Do you know where that comes from? That comes from a number of texts, three different places. I'll read one of them. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. It says, Who has performed and done this? calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. And then Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Once again, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, in Israel whom I called, I am He, I am the first, I am the last. So this one who is like a son of man comes to John and says, I am the first and the last. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the Lord. I am God. Now, you may or may not believe that Jesus is God, but it's indisputable that the Bible presents Him that way. And here is a very clear presentation where He is saying, I am the Lord of hosts. Is He quite safe? Of course He's not safe. But then we read, but He's good. And that's what He says to John. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What's he saying? We're not talking about safety here. He's saying, but I'm good. And where do we see the goodness of God most clearly displayed to us in the fact that He died, Christ died for us, that He conquered over death, and He holds in His hand the keys of death and of hell. What are the two things that frighten us most? most? Death and hell. And He says, I control both, because I died, I conquered, I rose, I control them all. He's not safe. So fall down before Him. But He's good. And so believe in Him and love Him. As He says, fear not. Fear not. I died. And now I'm alive forevermore. And then He concludes this vision by helping us out a little bit. Jesus is the first one to give us some interpretive clues here. He says to John, write what you've seen, verse 19 things that are and to take place after this. And then verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. One's easy enough. 
He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. And what are those lampstands? This comes from temple imagery in the past. In the Old Testament with the lampstands, they were always burning before the Lord, before His presence. The lampstands are the churches. And where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the churches. Even though some in those churches are getting cut down like grass, where is Jesus? He's in the midst of them because He too was cut down. And He stands as the one who's alive forevermore in the midst of the churches. The seven stars are a little more difficult. It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And there are different interpretations about who these angels are. But the word angel means messenger. And in the rest of Revelation, the angels are always heavenly messengers. And so that seems to be the the best interpretation here. There's something like the guardian angels of the churches. And we'll find next week when we begin to hear and read these letters to the churches, these letters are directed to the angel of the church. But the letters are really for the church. The letters are really not for the angels. They're just messengers to get these to the church. And here we have in His hand these angels ready to go and do His bidding to take His message to His church. The vision, this vision of Jesus was to enable persecuted Christians to keep going. And Christians of all generations, persecuted or not, to keep going and to keep persevering and to keep believing. How? By looking behind the chaotic and difficult and sometimes genuinely tragic events of our lives and events of our world. And look behind the curtain with the eyes of faith and see what's really going on. And when we do that, we can keep going. When you look behind the images in those magic eye pictures, you find something richer and deeper and more interesting and more engaging to stare at. But when you look behind the events of our world and of our lives with the eyes of faith, you don't find something, you find someone. And that someone is the one who is and was and is to come. That someone is the sevenfold Spirit who is with His church wherever we might be. That someone is the one who is the first and the last. The one who died and who rose again, who is alive forevermore and conquers over death and Hades for us. That's what we see if we have eyes to see. Or we could be like those who could never penetrate the surface of the the magic eye pictures and stare at it for a little while and say, I don't see anything. There's nothing there. You're making this up. But if we have eyes to see, the eyes of faith, we can look back behind the scenes and see God. Our lives will be different. You see, if we just look at the events of our lives, how depressing is that? If we just look at the condition of the world, how distressing and discouraging is that? If that's the only thing we can see, then we will be overwhelmed by the sadness and the difficulty and the tragedy. 
of the world and sometimes of our lives and the lives of those around us. But if we, with the eyes of faith, can look through the veil and see God, then we can live above our circumstances. And we can live by faith and not by mere sight. Let's pray. Our God, give us eyes to see that we might not turn away thinking this is all there is. This tragic comedy that we see lived out before us and in which we participate. Lord, give us eyes to see behind the scenes what You're doing. That You are establishing Your kingdom. That You are working Your will. That You are bringing about what is good and right. And that You are taking us along in this journey and calling us to persevere. And I pray for all of us that we would have eyes to see. That we would see Jesus and believe Him so that we might not live crushed by our circumstances or the events swirling around us, but that we might live lives of faith above our circumstances, that we might be able to handle whatever you bring our way and be faithful unto death, even as the faithful witness Jesus himself was. And we pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand for one more word from God? May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.